välkomna till Internationell författarscen. Jag heter Ida Linde. Och jag heter Athena Farrochsad och vi är programansvariga för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Alldeles strax ska ni få höra författaren Ocean Wong i samtal med mig. Varmt välkomna. Jag läste om Roland Barthes sorgedagbok igår. Boken han skrev varje dag i ett år efter sin mors död. Jag har känt min mors kropp, skriver han. Sjuk och sedan döende. Och där slutade jag läsa. Där bestämde jag mig för att skriva till dig. Du som ännu är i livet. De där lördagarna i slutet av varje månad då vi, om du hade pengar över efter räkningarna, begav oss till köpcentret. En del människor klädde sig fint för kyrkan eller för middagsbjudningar. Vi spökade ut oss för att gå till ett affärscentrum längs I-91. Du vaknade tidigt, sminkade dig i en timme. Satte på dig din finaste svarta paljettklänning, dina enda guldörhängen och svarta laméskor. Sedan gick du ner på knä och smetade lite på mada i mitt hår och kammade det. En främling som fick syn på oss där skulle inte kunna tro att vi handlade i den lokala affären på Franklin Avenue där ingången var täckt av kvitton för att använda matkuponger där stapelvaror som mjölk och ägg kostade tre gånger mer än de gjorde i förstäderna där kantstötta och skrumpna äpplen låg i en kartong drängt från botten med grisblod som läckt från lådan med lammkotletter där isen sedan länge smält. Vi köper den fina chokladen, sa du och pekade på chokladdisken. Vi brukade köpa en liten papperspåse med fem eller sex chokladbitar som vi plockat på Mofo. Det var ofta allt vi handlade på köpcentret. Sedan promenerade vi runt medan vi räckte en bit mellan oss tills våra fingrar sken bläckmörka och söta. Så här njuter man av livet, sa du och sög på dina fingrar. Där det rosa nagellacket var avskaft efter alla pedikyrer du gett den veckan. Gången med dina knytnävar när du skrek på parkeringsplatsen. Kvällssolen som ätsade ditt hår rött. Mina armar skyndade mitt huvud medan dina knogar slog omkring mig. De där söndagarna då vi strosade i korridorerna tills affärerna en efter en drog ner sina stålgrindar. Sedan begav vi oss till busshållplatsen nere vid vägen med andedräkten svävande över oss medan sminket torkade i ditt ansikte. Våra händer tomma förutom för våra händer. Welcome everyone and welcome to you. Uh, yes, can tell you've been waiting for this moment. Uh, and so have you. You said you are trying to run after your books, see where they ended up. Yeah, I, I, it's um, well. Thank you so much for having me. It's my first time in Sweden, and uh, what a, a, a wonderfully warm and um, communal uh, invitation. It's been nothing but. Uh, a pleasure and surprise to see um, what you know words in a tiny overheated apartment in New York could do. Um, I um, I do feel like I'm chasing after all of my books, uh, and they seem more and more estranged to me yeah. uh, because the book is a a time capsule. It's a photo album, particularly a collection of poems, and but even a novel, um, and so. To, to, to have the work and the magic of translation. And I have to thank my Swedish translator, Andreas Lundberg. Yeah. He's worked with me for so many years. Um, and, and I think my books, uh, if they have any meaning outside of, of America, it's thanks to the translators. So I owe them uh, a great debt. Um, but I, I am, I feel uh, like I'm finally catching up 
to this toddler <laughs> who's <laughs> ran ahead of me. Um, so it's glad to, I'm, I'm happy to finally be here in the corporal sense. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, if I would start saying something about your toddlers, <laughs> your books, uh, there's a lot of beauty in them. Like, um, there's the nail salon that is like an actual place for beauty, but there's also statements about beauty, imagery that is beautiful, boys in different lighting, and uh, it seems there's a connection between beauty and uh, repairing or intervening with the injuries of the world? Would you say there's a connection between, like, what does beauty mean for your writing? It's a wonderful question. I think, I think there's a lot of skepticism of beauty, particularly in literature and the arts, um, particularly in the 21st century milieu that I grew up in. And so the, the skepticism of beauty is that it could be too seductive to be true. And, uh, and then within capitalism, it is merely decorous, right? It, it, it decorates the room, but it has no function. And so I think there's this kind of testament um, that all literature has, is obligated to do, which is to defend its worth. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating to me that so often we ask of the poet and the poem to defend its worth, but we don't ask the same of dancing or even stamp collecting. Um, we assume that they are inherently valuable um, because people do them. But uh, it, is, it is strange that even as poets, we have the subgenre of ars poetica from the Latin, my art, right? What does my art mean to me? And uh, I don't bemoan it. I think it's interesting that we are asked to defend ourselves. But I actually invite the challenge because that query is actually something I think all people should do. All vocations should ask, at what point um, is, can I challenge the sort of um, self-sufficiency of what I'm doing? If only the people who make weapons ask the same thing, um, or, or you know, um, technology or what have you. If, if only people who own Twitter say the same thing. Um, so I, I invite it. I think it's a it's a it's a challenge to to always state why you should be here, um, and it's a it's a it's often a demand of the immigrant, yeah. of the refugee. Um, but we, if we are in control, through art we can turn that demand into a kind of sonnet, a form which can pressurize the project into something crystalline. And I've always felt that beauty is medicinal, especially when I was observing the women who raised me. They saw, they taught me to see the world and to see beauty as something that can heal, um, that it didn't function merely as a decor, uh, that it could save you, that you can choose how to curate your life and how to look at the world um, so that it can sustain you, right? And I think that was such a powerful thing from women who owned very little, had no English, had very little power in the world. Uh, It was very interesting that they turned to a boy that they were raising And the first thing they taught him how to do was recognize beauty. And when I teach in the classroom, I teach in this way. My students come into the classroom wanting the workshop to be a place where things are corrected and things are fixed. Fix my poem so I can bring it to the market and be a writer. I understand that a lot of the world taught them that that's how it should be done. And so they expect the workshop to repair and to correct and to brush up. Even the the word, the metaphor of workshop is a metaphor of production. Clean up this poem, fix this line, brush it off, right? Tighten the the, the syntax. Um, 
But I, I think for my first step in the, in the workshop is to teach them how to recognize. What is it in this poem that is valuable to you? What, is, what do you see in this poem? Because the poem, I think, is the thumbprint of a selfhood. It's the DNA. Syntax is DNA made manifest in language. And uh, so we don't, for the first three or four weeks, we don't correct anything. Mm. We name what we see. And by the fourth week, when we start to have suggestions, something wonderfully natural happens. You never hear terms like, a poem should never be this or that. You start to hear things like, oh, Ida, your poems tend to do this thing, I've noticed, and I think if you do it like this, it could be much more productive based on what I've recognized in your work. So now we are in a very communal space of not only recognizing our values, but our personality and our personhood. Because what is literature but the extension of a linguistic personhood? And when you can recognize that as a skill, not as a decorous you know, thing that you just have uh, that's, that's virtuous or what have you, but to recognize beauty as a skill um, becomes part of the tools of art making. And, and I actually think photography is a major form that's inspired me um, greatly. And photographers know this, I think, um, in a very intimate way. Uh, thinking now when you're talking about also like the why, <laughs> that I think, I also think uh, it would be great if the weapon makers and everyone ask themselves that. But I also do think all literature should be concerned with the question, also from where something is written, to whom, and all those different directions that I also think you actually learn to identify in the way you're talking about how you're teaching reading. Uh, but in your novel, it has this um, form of the letter uh, from a son writing to his mother in a language she cannot read, which I think asks another very profound question, that is, how does language matter? Like, does it matter at all? Yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering if that kind of, was the form of the letter connected to that question? Like, how do they, did they come together in the process? Absolutely. I, I think, in a way, uh, language is a main character in that novel. Because when you have a line of communication that is not promised, then the question is, why speak at all? And I think that becomes the existential question of Ars Poetica. And I think in one way, the, the novel is as much a novel as it is what the Germans call Kunstlerroman, which is an artist's novel. And I think it's in many ways an artist's statement. I needed to write that novel in order to kind of set up the thesis for hopefully the rest of what I do. Um, but I felt that I was given permission by good elders, I think, mm. you know, in that sense, James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. He said, I had to write that book in order to write all the other books. And I think that book is fascinating because it takes place in one day in Harlem and it, it kind of works as a Trojan horse. Mm. You think you're going to get, you know, the real gritty, authentic Harlem, right? Which is what the publishing industry wants out of James Baldwin at the time. But instead, he kind of... Um, invites everyone on the tour bus, and then he grabs the microphone and says, there's no wheels. And I'm just going to tell you some history. And so that book becomes, it's positioned as a novel, but in fact it operates as histor you know, a, a historicization of black migration from the South after slavery to New York. And I was so stunned when I read that, I said, thank you, maestro. You know, you, this is this is what I want to do. Yeah. I want to get everyone on the bus and just mm. have a conversation. But in this case, I wanted a conversation between two Asian Americans. I wanted to anyone who reads this book, other Asian Americans included, to be eavesdropping on a center that is not that doesn't involve them, right? So to consume this book, you must kind of trespass into a conversation between a mother and a son. And I thought that trespassing um, could be quite fortuitous, but also 
the awareness of power, that there's a, there's a transgression of power that happens. Um, I was also inspired by Franz Kafka's Dearest Father. Now, I encountered that book in a used bookstore in New York, um, right next to his novels. So I didn't know that was an actual document from Kafka that he, couldn't, he didn't send to his father. So he wrote that, never sent this. But I read it as a novel, and I thought, what an incredibly inventive way to center language through the impossibility of a receiver. Um, you know, we, we think about uh, Jacobson's theory of pathetic communication being the communication that tests the microphone. Is this on, right? And so much of our, our query of how are you, I don't know how it is here, but in America, how are you has turned into just a kind of filler to, to acknowledge existence. The question, the query, the beauty of that question has now been lost um, to apathic communication. And so we don't have how are you anymore. And I think uh, a culture is in great crisis when it, doesn't, it no longer has the medium to inquire about the well-being of one another. And I think that's the seat of this novel is to really ask not only of this mother, this, this character of the mother, but also of my country, America. You know, uh, if, if it was ever published, I never expected it to be published. But for me, the project was how do I ask, you know, of my own community, the country wherein my tax dollars goes to drone strikes in the Middle East. How do I ask of that, of that country, how are you? And I found out for me, in order to ask that well, I had to become a mirror, which also explains, you know, in order to know, to, to understand how are you, I had to say, what have you been doing to us? And I think in America, those two questions come hand in hand. I just remembered, give me a second if I wrote it up, otherwise I have to look in your book. Okay. Because uh, now when you're talking, yes, because it says this in the novel, because now you were, while you were talking about this and teaching, I came to think, it says, I am writing because they told me to never start a sentence with because, but I wasn't trying to make a sentence, I was trying to break free because freedom, I am told, is nothing but the distance between the hunter and its prey. This is also a poem, right? Yeah, By yeah. Beda. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> One of my heroes and who wrote most of his work in exile. Yeah. Um, and I, I want, you know, I wanted the book to be a site of collaboration, of conversations. You know, we don't, it's strange because we fetishize the debut yeah. Uh, we want the debut to kind of blow up, right? He, you, someone blew up. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's interesting. <laughs> to, to, to become relevant is to explode. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> but I think it was important for me to kind of correct, try to correct that in my debut, in my blow yeah. up, to say actually this, this novel comes out of years of learning my craft and my lineage and... Uh, the lineage is global. I'm really happy to finally be in Scandinavia because so much of, of uh, my influences come from here. Thomas Tranström, I've read for years, Inger Christensen, I teach Christensen's It and the Alphabet, which I know you've translated um, into Swedish, so thank you for that work. <laughs> thank you. Um, but also Alders Laxness, and mm -hmm. uh, we said uh, Tove Delitzen. Laxus's work was really interesting too because reading Scandinavian authors taught me that the term Eurocentric, which we love in the States as a kind of reductive, you know, a, a, a monolithic term of Europe was actually false, right? What we actually mean when we say Eurocentric is perhaps a Western Euro uh, tradition of that trifecta of influence between um, France, England, and Germany, right? For the cultural, yes. particularly in literature, um, you know, Freytag's triangle of plot, device, and what have you. But in fact, when you read outside of that, uh, in the work of um, Agatha Christoph as well, oh. 
um, you realize that it's not traditionally Eurocentric. It's it's false just to, to have that blanket statement because oh, yes. when I read the Scandinavian authors, some of the innovative and most exciting things that I saw in Eastern traditions, mm. like the Japanese tradition, I saw in the Laxness's work, mm. right? The refusal of plot in his, mm. in his book, uh, Fish Can Sing, using the chronicle to hold time as a dominant force and not plot devices and little gimmicky things. And, and so it was actually reading the Scandinavian authors that taught me that there's, there's no such thing as Eurocentric. We have to be actually much more careful um, and we have to give more credit to writers who just have not been as prominent in the Western you know, Europe cultural powerhouse mm -hmm. um, that has been so um, recognizable. Right? I think uh, some of these writers you mentioned, but I also think of your body of work. If I started suggesting that it was beauty is one of your themes, I think sorrow is another. <laughs> like the sorrow over a life lived and a life lost, and also like the, like a sorrow that comes out of knowing that moving forward means to leave things, people, parts of yourself behind. But I also feel like uh, that sorrow isn't a definite feeling in your books. It's a place of vulnerability, maybe even affect, like affection through sorrow. I agree, thank you for recognizing that. I think for me, sorrow goes hand in hand with guilt. Mm. And uh, guilt and regret, you know, I think I grew up in a culture where guilt and regret are taboo. You know, we often say, the boys that I grew up with often flex their muscles and say, no regrets, um, you know. <laughs> And, I, and this was a cry of triumph, yeah. you know, that, that to, to second guess anything is a kind of um, a defeat mm -hmm. of, of the self and the defeat of triumph. But I actually think sorrow is most useful when it has regret. You know, what, what is guilt but, and regret but to come to the knowledge that we could have done something better for each other? Mm -hmm. What, what does that mean other than the production or the product of growth? To regret is to grow. To be guilty is to be aware, right? And I think the question that I have, that I ask of literature, both for myself and the, the books that I love and read, is how do we turn this useful? Mm. And I think, for me, literature cannot live and die on the page. It has to enter the body as an energy, and that energy should be provocative. It should get us to, to do something. I, I don't know if it could change the world, but I do think language changes the world. No matter how good our pharmaceuticals, how advanced our weapons, how powerful our AI, our cars, our technologies, our nuclear bombs, or energies. You can invent the most incredible things, but only through language can you convince each other to live or die, to defend or dismantle them. And this is true every time you pick up the controller and look at the TV. Someone is working a story. It's really fascinating. I started my education in business school. And I lasted three weeks, but I... <laughs> and now you're a great businessman. <laughs> so all poetry begins with failure. Right? Um, so I failed into yeah. this life, quite frankly. I, I went to New York to study international marketing, and my hope was to make money and take care of my mother, get her out of government housing and then be a poet, but I, I didn't last. I, I wasn't cut out for it. Um, but marketing is very similar. Uh, it's, we can learn a lot from how it works, right? In, in the 40s and 50s when it, or actually in the 20s and 30s when newspapers you know, were popular, you see an item uh, marketed, it'll be a car or a washing machine, and it'll just have facts. This is what it does. Four wheels, engine, et cetera, et cetera. But then, around mid-century, 
in the 60s and 70s, we started to see ad companies use storytelling yeah. to convince you, right? And so now, Volvo, for example, has an ad using Walt Whitman's poems, oh, poems that advocated um, expansionist mm. genocide of indigenous peoples mm. are now used in this Volvo ad to uh, tell the story that this car will give you freedom and creativity, right? It will enrich your life by making your life meaningful. That's incredibly powerful technology. Yeah. Right? And, so, <laughs> and, and it's also used, Whitman's poems are used to sell the iPad and Levi's yeah. jeans, you know? Um, and so language is at work. And so we, the paying attention to its power is actually incredibly important. Every dictatorship and totalitarian regime, the first thing they control is language. Um, and so, you know, th does books change the world? I don't go on, go far to, to be that romantic no. about it, but I do think that language is the tool of both elucidation, healing, but also coercion yeah. into nefarious ends. I was, uh, uh, I mean, like a lot of stories, like queer stories, are often built around loss or death or loneliness, for reasons we all know. Uh, I'm, I'm coming back to language that you're talking about. Uh, but in your books, yes, it's that, it's sadness and loneliness, but there's also the ecstatic. I would say there's a lot of bliss and, uh, you know, someone else's wedding dress put on backwards or playing air guitar, like this kind of imagery that made me think of something that has to do with this of language. It's a quote from uh, Esteban, Jose Esteban Munoz, a book called Cruising Utopia. Oh, yeah, you know? a yeah. beautiful book, yeah. Uh, where he says, um, queerness is not yet here. Queerness is an ideality. Put another way, we're not yet queer. We may never touch queerness, but we can feel the warm illumination of a horizon imbued with potentiality. We have never been queer, yet queerness exists for us as an ideality that can be distilled from the past and used to imagine a future. And for me, this quote is very connected to writing, that writing, even if the books don't change the world, but they have a potentiality to bring something forth. That quote is actually really interesting in, in terms of ghosts, because I think so much of, of what we do, and you're a writer as well, mm. uh, is that we are writing the ghosts into mm. the future with the hope that it could earn yeah. its body. Yeah. So it's the reverse of life on Earth. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's absolutely right. That, and I think it, it risks a lot. It's very expensive on the soul to say, I think where we're headed is worth going to. Um, because it also takes a lot of faith. And faith is a very nebulous and, and strange thing. Um, but the more, I've been doing this now for 15 years, and the more I do it, the less I really know how it's done. When I was much younger, I had all these rules, and rules were really helpful when you're young because they're like guide roads. They're like what the kind of rules did you have? God, I, I, I was very successful in, in forgetting all of them. But one of them, <laughs> one of them was um, to never use contractions. Oh, you know, someone told me that. Yeah. You know, um, uh, an, an older man, of course, you know, said. <laughs> Never use the contraction. No. It, it muddies the poem. The poem deserves something much more stately. And I believe that. When you're young, you just yeah. believe everything. And, uh, but it's also helpful to have the guideposts because you said, okay, everybody's going on this road. If I go on this road, I'll end up somewhere recognizable. Yeah. I'll do the art. And, but after a while, you realize, what about that forest? I, I'm, there's something there that, that's catching my eye. And I think it's queerness that gave me permission and the courage to get off the road. 
You know, it's kind of like I go back to another New England poet, Robert Frost, Two Roads Diverge in the Wood. And I said, as a queer writer, I said, I don't want the road. I want the wood. You know? Yes. <laughs> and, and we often think of, of queerness as something deprived, yeah. either deprived in morals or ethics, um, but also deprived in sustenance, right? We don't have the nuclear family, we don't have the hetero, heteronormative values, and so we are lost. You know, parents fret over their queer children having miserable lives of being alone and bereft or ill. But in fact, I think everything wonderful in my life has come because of, I was queer. Yeah. Because it gave me the courage to say, wherever all of these people are headed, my cousins, my family, my, my community, it's not for me. I have to say no to it. Even to my own family, as respectfully as I can. And that gave me the courage to fully jump over the rail and I've been lost in the forest ever since. And so I don't know how it's done, but mm -hmm. I've been just following pleasure mm -hmm. and joy and surprise. And so what started as a journey on this old highway, yeah. and American highways are very new, but they're in horrible condition. Yeah. You know? um, always being repaired, yeah. always with traffic. What started with me trying to follow the road has ended with me just looking at a North Star in the woods. And I said, I'll never reach the North Star, but moving towards it is what's given me all the great things in my life. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Can I, now I'm thinking, when I read your books, like your two first books, now I'm suggesting something here. <laughs> Reading them, they felt like they were more of a containing books, like they're gathering, while this one is more of a spreading, a more of an impulse. Now I'm thinking, is, is it more in the woods? <laughs> I hope so. Um, I, I think um, something happened uh, after my mother died. I, I, I wrote some of these poems when she was still alive. Some of these poems are seven, eight years old. Um, but I was working on this book when she passed, and I think something really strange happened. I, I thought that I was a radical, innovative writer. We always tell ourselves this, you know. Um, I, I studied with a wonderful, he calls himself a late modernist, Ben Lerner. And so he gave, he was the one that gave me Ingrid Christensen's oh. alphabet. And, you know, studying the New York School, the second wave, um, and this, those writers are hugely uh, inspiring to me. So I always thought that I was writing in a kind of avant-garde, you know. I was very proud of that, but it wasn't until my mother died that I realized that my work has actually been quite conservative, um, formally, and, and because everything I've done was for my mother. I, every book, you know, being a teacher was all to have a career to take care of her. It was not even a question. It wasn't, I never stopped and say, oh, what can I do or should I do? It's like my, my whole life has just been, I will do this for my mother and my family. You don't, and anyone who's been in situations where, you know, if you're an immigrant, you're taking care of elders who don't have the language, the dominant language, you, you're always, you know, moving with your head down towards them. But when she passed, I realized, wait a minute. What happens if Ocean writes for himself? And I didn't know. I thought, I, you, you asked me four or five years ago, do you write for yourself? I always say yes. But it's interesting, when you, lose, when you watch your mother take her last breath, 
at her bed, you realize that there's another level of freedom when you're just alone. And I think that was the last gift she gave me. She didn't know she was giving me this gift. Um, but it was almost like, fuck it, right? What, what will I write when I say fuck it? Yeah. Um, and and this, this book kind of came out of that. And I, I don't know if that feeling lasts, you know? Mm. Um, but, but at least for this book, I got to say um, what happens. And I saw that it's, it's, it's much more playful. You know, and I'm really, I am really proud of that. Yeah. My friends tell me, Ocean, you're so funny, but your books are so sad. <laughs> and <laughs> I said, But this is funny. Yeah, yeah. so I said, finally, yeah. I could be a little more of myself. And mm. I think um, I have my mother to thank for that. Yeah. In one of these poems, um, Dear Rose, you, that kind of revisits the novel from another place in time. It also has this quote from Bart that also is in your novel that Athena read in the beginning uh, when the narrator is reading uh, the morning diary. And uh, now I'm thinking while you're talking about that book, that is that Bart is also, he writes this book uh, after his mother's passing. Uh, he says he, has, he doesn't have grief. He's grieving, like he's really highlighting the verb over the noun. <laughs> Would that be true for you as well? If Absolutely. I, I think you don't possess loss. No. You, you enter it like weather. It occurs. And I think I've been in that weather ever since, you know, and... We, we, it's a taboo to talk about death with friends or at the dinner table. You know, in America we say, not at dinner. And I say, I don't know why dinner is so sacred. You know? um, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever you do, don't say it at dinner. You know? God forbid the meatloaf. What can you talk about yeah. in the end? Don't say anything. Yeah. The meatloaf can hear you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll hurt the meatloaf's feelings. So. Um, but I think there's a kind of suburban uh, ethics to that. Particularly where I'm from in New England, there's a kind of New England Protestant coldness that of reserved. And but I think the truth is that the dead outnumber the living, and we who feel loss outnumber those who don't. Right? We the majority of our lives are on this side of the gate. And experiencing it has, um, I don't see myself as a victim of it, uh, of, of it happening to me. I think I'm heading towards the most human part of, of our existence, is to be gone. Emptiness is the destination for all of us. And I have so much more understanding for people, um, you know, people who have not felt it. And I said, you know, you're on your way, and uh, you know it'll, it'll be okay on this side because there's a lot of us here, and it's important to remind ourselves that that we do outnumber those who don't know the loss. This uh, nothingness makes me think of another poem here, the Künstlerroman. Yeah, uh, that I've, is kind of a subcategory, I think, to the more famous Bildungsroman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you can be famous as a genre, I don't know, but maybe. Yeah. Uh, where maybe the difference is that the Künstlerroman, the hero never settles. Like it can never, it's never like succeeding or like, and then like now it's done. <laughs> right. Like right. it's more of a not settled. But here it goes backwards. Yeah. That poem. Yeah. But Every, but not everything in the poem. There's things that cannot go backwards. Okay. Are they like fighting this nothingness? Is it a resistance? Oh God, I, I was interested in tracing, you know, I wanted the, that poem to really work the way memory works. And so 
it's not as linear as it is presented. And again, that's also an artist statement. In a way, it's the way of saying that the sentence is a linear technology, but it does not make linearity felt. It doesn't have to. And I, I'm really interested in the sentence as both a device of possibility, but also a device of tyranny. Particularly the long sentence, right? The long sentence is how um, laws are written, how our, our country imprison and penalize people is to obfuscate meaning through the subordinate clause, right? If you, the defendant, shall be under this duress, under Article 4 or 5, and after a while you need to hire a professional <laughs> yes. to make language legible to you at the risk of your very life. And so when the state claims the sentence, it becomes a tool of uh, subjection um, or liberation, depending on who gets access to that dialect. And a dialect, standard English is a dialect, but that dialect is only as legitimate as those in power give it credence. It has, it's no more legitimate than uh, black vernacular or regional vernaculars or Arkansas uh, dialects. Um, uh, but the standard English, that dialect has an army and a navy attached to it. And that makes all the difference. Mm. And so I'm really curious just to look at the sentence making as a kind of literary drag. <coughs> because I was really fascinated, I, I, I got my undergrad degree in 19th century American literature, and what I was really fascinated with was in the 19th century, the peak of masculine literary success was to delay the period. We see this in Whitman, yeah. Hawthorne, Melville, uh, 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 Dickens as well. Uh, to have, uh, and then later in Proust, right, to have the uh, um, circumnavigating subordinate clause was mimetic of the expansionist ethics of America. It was If you can fill the page with as much verbiage as possible, you've achieved the pinnacle of mass, maximalist male success. And uh, interestingly enough, after World War I, uh, we have Hemingway, who introduced that uh, truncated, you know, catatonic, uh, laconic sentence, which he lifted or stole from Gertrude Stein. Yeah. Um, but I was so interested that the modernists turned away from the long sentence, but in order to render that technique defunct, they had to feminize it. That style is now called purple prose, unrestrained, flowery. Mm -hmm. So it's really fascinating to me as a literary culture that in order to do away with a set of tools, to denigrate it, we must first associate it with the feminine and with women in order to throw it away. And I was really fascinated by that, uh, going back and using that sentence into the present. And I feel like a lot of my work is both a kind of drag or perhaps even more accurately, a junkyard artist to look at the waste of mm. the literary techniques and say, I'm not beholden to the linear dialectic mm. that says you should, this is passe or defunct. I say, I'll take that if it's useful <laughs> and I'll take the modernness if it's useful. And I think as an outsider, I was free to do that, yeah. right? Because who says the romantics are done with? Because the conversation was done between groups of white men. Who's to say that those techniques have no use to me, right? And I think when you talk about ec ecstasy, and I think of the romantic sublime of Keats um, and Shelley, right? And I think, well, I, I, I think that still has use for me. And particularly the romantics writing um, against you know the industrialization of England, the first country to do so, and the political uh, premise of the Romantics, which has been completely whitewashed as kind of a fet, dreamy, bohemian folks who went to the countryside and 
and, and looked for the sublime, which actually a revolt against the capitalistic destruction of the human body that was happening in London. Um, and so I thought, wow, that's, who's to say that we are done with that? Who's to say that's passe? Just because you know, the professors have followed a kind of dialectic that says we're done. I'm interested in a time travel that can reclaim these tools that have been rusted and then to forge them into absolutely new architectures. Um, and I think that kind of extravagance, the extraness of drag to, to, to have the glitter be overpowering is actually life-affirming. Oh, uh, I was so good, because now I was thinking, I heard that uh, Athena told me uh, <laughs> that you uh, have uh, been very, uh, read uh, uh, Frank O'Hara a lot. And I was thinking, like, how is that connected to your work? I'm also a fan. But then I kind of, now when you're talking, I kind of get it with all these different techniques. And like, he's walking, but you have this yard with all the different techniques you can gather. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it, 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 it was so strange to me. And I think, I don't know, I, was, I come at art completely new. I, I didn't have parents who nurtured it or sent me to poetry camp, which exists in America. <laughs> and, um, don't say anything at dinner. Your mom might send you to poetry camp. Um, and I, I look, if I had a chance, I, I would love to go to poetry camp yeah. myself. I, I, you know, um, but I didn't have any. So I was just, I, I was completely new to all of it. And I was so intimidated. But I always thought it was strange that we shouldn't look back and gather everything. You know, and I, and I told my students, it's like, well, welcome to your education as, as, uh, in poetry. And I also, st I hate to say this, but you have to read everything. Um, starting with Gilgamesh. <laughs> so <laughs> go to 4,000 years yes. and then let's go, right? Um, but I, I, I don't even say that facetiously. Mm -hmm. I think we owe it to ourselves to learn and see what our elders, living and dead, have done with the vocation of the line, right? In some countries, the line goes up and down, and some it goes this way, some it goes that way, but it's a line. Um, and, and to see, to work through that uh, is our obligation. I, I study the field, and this is why I'm, 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 I'm not for the, the recent trend of canceling you know, uh, canonical writers. Because if we don't read Walt Whitman, if we don't read him thoroughly, both what he succeeded with the line, but also how he failed, we owe it to ourselves to know how he failed in his ethics. We need to understand his racism in order to understand ours, right? To track that literary development thoroughly. Um, if we don't do that, Volvo will just do it, right? <laughs> this is what I mean when I think there's always a battleground mm. of meaning, and we call this hermeneutics or interpretation, mm. right? Um, but if we surrender that, it will feel good only within our classroom, mm. right? It will feel righteous and good, but as far as long-lasting effects, uh, we've, we've just taken our voice off out of the, out of the stage, right? We've, we've muffled ourselves. We end up censoring our own thinking, and so I think we owe it to um, ourselves to study thoroughly and to hold the past accountable. But in order to do that, you must know it. And taking it off the syllabus is actually you know, sh closing our mouths completely and we lose a lot by doing that. So I think we should read everything. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we should read everything. I'm so happy to have been talking to you. Would love to talk about all the books in the world. Uh, but uh, now it's time for you to read a lot of your poems. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you for asking me to close. I'll close with two poems, one longer and one little short one. Uh, this poem is just a prose block. It's called Nothing. 
Growing up in New England, I've always wanted to write a poem about shoveling snow. Um, I thought it was very quintessential of an American experience to wake up early, to dig your car out of the snow, to, to, to do labor, to get your car out of the snow in order to get into your car to go to work and do more labor. Right? So it's, it's a quintessentially very American poem. Nothing. We are shoveling snow, this man and I. Our backs coming closer along the drive. It's so quiet, every flake on my coat has a life. I used to cry in a genre no one read. What a joke, they said, on fire. There's no money in it, son, they shouted, smoke from their mouths. But ghosts say funny things when they're family. This man and I, we take what will vanish anyway and move it aside, making space. There is so much room in a person. There should be more of us in here. Traveler who is inches away but never here. Are you warm where you are? Are you you where you are? Something must come of this. In one of the rooms in the house the man and I share, a loaf of rye is rising out of itself, growing lighter as it takes up more of the world. In humans, we call this aging. In bread, we call it proof. We're in our thirties now, and I rolled the dough just an hour ago, pushing my glasses up my nose with a flower-dusted palm as I read, re-read the hand-scrawled recipe given me by the man's grandmother, the one who, fleeing Stalin, bought a ticket from Vilnius to Dresden without thinking it would stop. It so happened in Auschwitz. It was a town after all where she and her brother were asked to get off by soldiers who whispered, keep moving, keep moving, like boys leading horses through wheat fields in the night. How she passed the huddled coats, how some were herded down barbed wire lanes, the smoke from our mouths rising as the man and I bend and lift in silence, the morning clear as one inside a snow globe. How can we know, with a house full of bread, that it's hunger, not people, that survives? He pours a bag of salt over the pavement. From where I'm standing, it looks like light is spilling out of him, like the dusty sun ray that found his grandmother's hands as she got back on the train, her brother at her side, smoke from the engine blown across the faces outside, which soon fall back to pine forests, washed pastures, empty houses with full rooms. The man clutches his stomach as if shot, the light flooding out of him, I mean you, because something must come of this. When the guard asked your grandmother if she was Jewish, she shook her head, half lying, then took from her bag a roll, baked the night before, tucked it in the guard's chest pocket. She didn't look back as the train carried her, newly twenty, toward where I now stand on a Sunday in Florence, Massachusetts, squinting at her faded scrawl. Sift flour, then beat eggs until happy yellow. The train will reach Dresden days before the sky is filled with fire bombers. More smoke, a bullet or shrapnel failing to find her. The brother under rubble, his name everywhere around her like the snow falling on your face 40 years later on December 2nd, 1984, while your mother carries you alive only three hours, the few steps to the minivan where your grandmother, 60 now, crowns your head with your brother's name. Peter, she says. Peter, as if the dead could be called back into new stunned bones. The snow has started up again, whitening the path as though nothing happened. Oh, to live like a bullet, 
to touch people with such intention, to be born going one way toward everything alive, to walk into the world you never asked for and choose a place where your wanting ends. Which part of war do we owe this knowledge? It is warm in this house where we will die, you and I. Let the stanza be one room then. Let it be big enough for everyone. Even the ghosts rising now from this bread we tear open to see what we've made of each other. I know we've been growing further apart, unhappy but half full. That clearing snow and baking bread will not fix this. I know too, as I reach across the table to brush the leftover ice from your beard, that it's already water. It's nothing, you say, laughing for the first time in weeks. It's really nothing. And I believe you. I shouldn't, but I do. Thank you so much, and I'll end with this one. Thank you so much for your beautiful conversation and for tending to my work with such care. It's a deep, deep honor. Thank you, Aida. This poem uh, borrows a line from Frank O'Hara in his poem, Katie, which he says, someday I'll love Frank O'Hara. So. Someday, I'll love Ocean Vuong. Ocean, don't be afraid. The end of the road is so far ahead. It is already behind us. Don't worry. Your father is only your father until one of you forgets. Like how the spine won't remember its wings, no matter how many times our knees kiss the pavement. Ocean, are you listening? The most beautiful part of your body is wherever your mother's shadow falls. Here's the house with childhood, whittled down to a single red tripwire. Don't worry, just call it horizon and you'll never reach it. Here's today, jump. I promise it's not a lifeboat. Here's the man whose arms are wide enough to gather your leaving. And here the moment just after the lights go out when you can still see the faint torch between his legs. How you use it again and again to find your own hands. You ask for a second chance and are given a mouth to empty out of. Don't be afraid. The gunfire is only the sound of people trying to live a little longer and failing. Ocean, ocean, Get up. The most beautiful part of your body is where it's headed. And remember, loneliness is still time spent with the world. Here's the room with everyone in it. Your dead friends passing through you like wind through a wind chime. Here's a desk with the gimp leg and a brick to make it last. Yes, here's a room so warm and blood close. I swear you will wake and mistake these walls for skin. <laughs> Thank you so much.
Ocean and Ilda for this beautiful hour in your company. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.